Welcome to Board Game is Anonymous, episode 243. Top 10 first player tokens. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. Hey, and this is Anthony. So we are doing the top 10 first player tokens, which I got to say has to be a milestone, not just in BGA history, but I think in board gaming podcast history. I don't think anyone's ever covered this before. I, you might be right because I Googled this a lot to try to find. Because <laughs> I like, I, I thought of like maybe four or five, and I was like, oh, we can make a list out of this. Let's see what other ones there are. And I spent a very long time looking through a lot of them to see what was out there. Because yeah, oh sure, it's a piece of cardboard or it's a nice wooden token. But I was like, I want big ones. I want cool ones. So, yes. so we found them. We have a list. They may be the bane of your existence. They may be the reason why your board game costs double. They are your first player tokens. Now, what's weird, I guess, I mean, most games that we play are board-based, so typically there is, you know, markers on the board to to determine what player order you have. But you notice there's never a second player token, so to speak. I guess, I'm sure there's a game out there that's second, third, and fourth and such, but it's not really a thing. It tends to be the first player token. And it seems like people go all out of their way to make that a thing. So I guess we're going to make it a thing? Yeah. Because, okay. I mean, if it's a thing and it's a board game thing, we have to talk about it. If nobody else has talked about it, we're cornering the market. Yep. We got to stop the uh, the negativity out there about first player tokens and bring you the best that's out there for this episode. All right, Anthony, so there's a lot of great stuff that's going on with us and BGA, but unfortunately, all of that great stuff that's happening with BGA has been shut down by the Chinese government. So we'll get back to that in a future episode as soon as we apologize to the uh, Great Republic. But we have extra special fun stuff for you because we are going to talk about what our listeners are talking about. Anthony, what's our question of the week? All right. Yeah, I asked everybody what recent release would let you like to see a legacy or campaign ma- mode for. Uh, and this came in part because of Machikoro Legacy, which is apparently not bad from what I've seen. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to try it myself, but early indications are that it's not too bad of a game. And to me, that seems to be the only way to make legacy work. I, I've yet to play one that I enjoy that is an original IP. And I've played several, so it's it's not just like, I played Seafall and it was bad, which I did and it was, but Charterstone was disappointing, Queensdale was disappointing. General feel for me, at least, is that for Legacy to work, it's got to be built on top of a solid framework, and then you kind of iterate from there, like Pandemic. So anyways, I asked people what they would like to see in that vein, and uh, we got a bunch of good answers here. So kicking things off, we have David, and he... he Couches this by saying, I'm pretty sure they're making it, but the West Kingdom trilogy, um, like they did with the North Sea trilogy of games, so making a campaign out of Architects of the West Kingdom and Paladins and whatever the third game is going to be, which I think he's right. They probably are going to do that. So, you know, cheated a little bit there. Just saying. Um, Chris mentioned Star Trek Ascendancy, 
uh, it would be super long, but even five to six games where you keep your tech upgrades and maybe discover minor races to interact with and maybe even unlock more system discoveries and discs each game, similar to the tiles in Betrayal Legacy. Sounds cool. I'd be in for that. Rico mentions Horrified. So this is his new favorite gateway game. It could be really cool to live generations, you know, through the terrible monster infestations in the same town. And how awesome does new monsters hidden in tuck boxes sound? Pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm with you, man. Drew mentions Outer Rim. Uh, Legacy or Campaign would be fantastic. I think any of those like Fantasy Flight, uh, you know, sandboxy adventure games would be awesome for that. I don't think they're ever going to do it because that's not really their model anymore, but I would be down for it. Uh, Chris mentioned Underwater Cities. Uh, no idea how the mechanics would work, but maybe special assistance could carry over. I don't I don't know if they're working on this or not, but I know the expansion is going to add like more asymmetry and a little bit more of a build out. So maybe we're getting there slowly over time. <laughs> Nick mentions Anachrony as a legacy game, which I think would be awesome because the whole game is about like time travel and stuff. So why not throw that in there? And then Tim says Black Angel, which, again, I think anything that's got like a space theme or an exploration theme kind of has it built in that game in particular. I've, I'd be wary with that just because it already has like four or five systems interacting with each other. So if you added more to that, it could become a little clunky. But I, I love the idea. Like if you can make it work, it'd be amazing. So anyways, that's a bunch. Gonna say Terraforming Mars, but then I remember they're actually working on one. So we'll see <laughs> if that pans out or not. I really like the idea of an Underwater Cities one. I would love to see someone like Feld or Rosenberg or one of those guys try to tackle it in a Euro. Um, I don't know what that would look like, but since we've yet to have a Euro legacy game that's any good, <laughs> I would like to see one of the big guys give it a go. But yeah, I think any of these would be great. The Star Trek one in particular sounds pretty cool. Oh, the Star Trek one sounds fantastic. I, I guess I'm going to go with something that might be a little obvious because it has a ridiculous number of movies, and that's probably going to be Dinosaur Island. Just mm. because you do build up this pretty fantastic island full of dinosaurs, and they just sit there. And mm -hmm. because the theme of the game is so well connected to the movie series, even though it's legally distinct, you almost feel like something should always happen next, but it never really does. So if you could then take the dinosaur island and then do something with it, that would be really nice because it feels like the dinosaurs are just waiting around and, and eventually going to do something. And they never really do. And it's very, very disappointing. Yeah. That'd be cool, like a, like a dinosaur apocalypse game or something where they're yeah. just like rampaging through the streets. <laughs> True. I mean, it's like when you have those old Sim games where you're building Sim City up and you're like, oh, this is a great, this is really great. Look how I did all the things and I'm scoring points. And yeah, tornado, earthquake, giant dinosaur blowing everything up, you know, because I built it. So, yeah, I want to I want something else to happen. So if they could do that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right, so that's everything that's going on with our listeners. If you'd like to join us at the table, we'd love to have you. Don't forget, all of our social media is up and available for you. We're not just a podcast for board games. We're a podcast for board gamers. So please jump on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek. We have a YouTube channel. We have so many ways to reach out to us. Don't forget, patreon.com slash BGA. Your support keeps this podcast going. 
Thank you so much for your support. However you do so, passing the podcast on, sharing it with other people, letting people know in these Facebook groups that we're out there. It means a lot to us. And again, thanks again. All right, so Anthony, let's get on to the games that we want to hit the table. Let's talk about our acquisition disorders. All right, yeah. So I have one that I had a chance to look at at Gen Con and didn't get a chance to play it, but they had it set up on the last day of the convention just for people to kind of walk through and check out and take a look at. And now it's in previews. So the local store here got a copy in and they were showing it off. It's called Ecos First Continent and it's designed by John D. Clare. So this is kind of AEG's go-to designer these days behind Mystic Veil and um, the, all sorts of big stuff. Basically anything big that they have come out right now <laughs> seems to be from him. And this game in particular is very interesting for a couple of reasons. One, thematically, it's just not like something you typically see, right? It's a nature game, but almost like a, I don't know, geological level nature game. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you are, it's way in the past and you're helping to mold the planet and build the continent um, by the actions you take in your tableau. So on your turn, you're going to reveal different element tokens that come out of the element bag. And then everybody's going to have a chance to complete a card in their tableau which will then impact the shape of the continent. If you can't use an element or you don't want to, you can convert it into energy or you can get new cards and kind of build out the different options you have in terms of how you manipulate and, and play with this. It sounds really cool. It looks very pretty. And from, I, again, I haven't played it yet, but the couple people I know who did play it in the demos locally um, really enjoyed it a lot. So I'm looking forward to this one. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It is decently expensive and looks kind of light. So... Hopefully I get a chance to try it before I buy, but it is uh it looks like another good one from AEG that just eschews the normal kind of thematic um uh types of games that come out that do this type of thing. So looking forward to giving it a go. That's Eco's first continent. Yeah, this looks really great. As you mentioned, it's nice to see a different theme out there, and especially something that really kind of you know thematically plays through. You don't always see that. And AG has been knocking it out of the park recently, so I'm really looking forward to uh, getting this game to the table. All right, so a game that we've actually gotten to the table, but a digital format that you're probably not aware of is Spirit Island has a digital tabletop version that's coming out to Steam. So if you are a Steam fan or if you are a Spirit Island fan, you may want to check this out on Indiegogo. At the current time of this recording, it has 25 days left. Now, Indiegogo is a little different than Kickstarter, if you're not familiar with that, which is they have a $40,000 goal. And in this case, this campaign will only receive funds if at least $40,000 is raised by its deadline. So Indiegogo usually has this thing where whatever money they raise, they get. Here is a fixed goal. They need to raise that money in order to produce a digital version. So if you are a fan of Spirit Island, or again, if you're a fan of just board gaming in general that's out there on Steam, this is something nice to add because Spirit Island plays great as a solo game, which I know Anthony will attest to, but it also, you know, plays great as a co-op, and just generally, those are two really great versions of games that you can play by yourself, or you can get somebody to actually jump on. Now, I've played Spirit Island in multiple formats on the other board game simulators. And they've been honestly a little problematic. So while Tabletop Simulator and Tabletopia 
try to do and really make you know an all out effort since things aren't locked in you really have to constantly go back to the rule book so i'm really looking forward to actually having a version of this game that just locks in and plays out like just really any other video game yeah yeah we tried twice on tabletop simulator and it was it was not good we spent no a large amount of time setting it up and then an even larger amount of time trying to fiddle with things and i think we gave up so yeah we i I'm i played very, a couple of times yeah well i mean that's more than i got in i i gave up at least um like, <laughs> but no i'm 100 percent on board with this I, I love the idea of having this uh on a device that i can carry with me because I honestly I haven't played this game a ton in the last year or so, just because once you fall behind in the rules and once you, you know, run out of time, I guess, and you don't, cause it's the kind of game you want to leave set up and just play through a couple of sure. times. Uh, it just hasn't happened. So the app would be great to kind of keep it fresh, you know, similar to what like through the ages did where that's a game I might've played once a year and now I can play it once a month because it's just there. All right. So that's everything that we want to hit the table or the tablet. Let's get on to the games that did hit the table this week, and we will let you know if those games are a buy and you should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play and you should sit down and enjoy them, if those games are a dodge and they should be avoided at all costs, or if those games are the dreaded burn and they are just not worth anything whatsoever. Anthony, what do you have for us this week? All right. Yeah, this is a Kickstarter that I backed a while back, and it is uh, from a couple new designers that I haven't really heard of before. Joseph Z. Chen and Justin Faulkner. And the artwork was also by Joseph. So this is self-published. Uh, this is their first game, I believe. And it's called Fantastic Factories. Uh, it is a tableau builder. It has dice in it. So there is somewhat of an element of luck there. But once you get going with the game, you're it's pr pretty well mitigated. Uh, those end up just being like your workers. The idea of the game is that you're, again, building out a tableau that will convert resources that you generate into other things, ideally goods, but also points on cards. Similar to other Tableau games like this, the game ends when you get enough cards out. So it's 10 cards or 12 goods that you produce. So as a result, the game is fairly short. It's about 45 minutes to an hour with a table of people. Um, it plays one to five. It seems better around three or four, and it plays solo in about 20 minutes. So that's great. <laughs> I like that a lot. Uh, mechanically speaking, the the game is fairly simple. You have uh, some cards in a line at the top of the table for people to draw from. Beginning of the round, everybody gets to take one of those cards, or they can pay a card based on the icons uh, in the rows and take a special like contractor card that gives them some special ability for that round or like one big bonus, which is really cool. It's like a nice little flexibility thing. You do all that, and then everybody rolls their dice, and then in player order, you go around and you take your turns. And there's a few different things you can do. So you have your own personal board where you can place dice to draw cards. You can place dice to get energy, and whatever the pips are on the dice, that's the energy you get. Or you can place dice to get uh, metal, which is the other resource, or just the two resources. And as you do that, you will then be able to play cards from your hand. To play a card, you have to play a another card of the same symbol. There's four different like symbol types, and they just discard that. So similar to like a, a San Juan or something, where you have to discard cards to play cards. But in this case, it's just one for one, and then you pay whatever the resources are on that card to play it. There are many different types of cards. Uh, the deck has I don't know maybe 70, 80 cards in it, and there are some duplicates. But generally, you have a lot of different options here. Some of them will convert 
like energy into points. Some of them will convert cards you play into other things. You can change the numbers on your dice. You can play extra cards. You can draw things. It's, it, you know, it's a tableau builder. It's, you're building an engine out of this stuff. So you're trying to build the most efficient engine that's going to generate as many of those goods as possible before the end of the game. But at the same time, help you keep the resources and goods you need up so that you can have something to do on the next turn. I guess, you know, it's not reinventing the wheel at all. It's it's very much a, <laughs> like everything in here feels similar. Like, you know, this is a light engine builder game. It reminded me a lot of Villagers, which we both talked about not too long ago, in that it is very straightforward. It's got charming artwork. It's very bright. People are drawn to it for all those reasons. It's quick and accessible. And it doesn't do anything amazing or different, but what it does, it does very well. So I really, really enjoy it. I did have a chance to play it a couple times before my copy came in, just because a friend of mine had print and played his. So I played that version, which, you know, obviously is print and play. So, But it got the idea of the rules, at least. And now I've played, you know, my version that's come in a couple times as well. And yeah, I'm really happy with it. I'm glad I picked it up. I don't know what the deal is in terms of distribution or where you can buy it. I know my local store got it, but I think they might have backed the Kickstarter. So I would go check it out. Maybe it's on their website, uh, Metafactory Games. Either way, for me, this is, it's a nice light buy. It's a quick, easy game. It's something that fills time pretty well, but has some interesting interesting decisions behind it. And, you know, it's colorful and and fun to look at. It's not, and it's not nearly as much rules overhead as like a race for the galaxy where like you have to memorize 400 symbols. (laughs) There's like five symbols in the game and they, they generally make sense. So that's Fantastic Factories. Well worth checking out. A lot of fun. And yeah, this is a this is a good one. Yeah, I remember seeing this way back when. And it obviously, you know, when you utilize the dice placement mechanic, it's it really always has me kind of on board. The artwork just made it seem like, as you're mentioning, it's fast, it's quick, it's kind of engaging, but it seemed like a little too too light for me. I mean, how would you rate this as far as weight is concerned? Uh, I don't know, like low twos, okay. low to mid twos. It's not, it's not heavy at all. No, it, it's definitely more like villagers in terms of how it plays out, and the complexity comes in with what cards do I want to get to combo off each other, and how complicated of a combo can I get? I feel like someone could sit down and play this game just knowing the three basic rules and just play whatever cards they feel like and run their things, and that's it. And then someone else could come in and try to like min max their engine and really get as much out of it as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's as complex as you want it to be, but it by its nature is fairly simple. Nice. Yeah. I'll have to check this one out. All right. Well, I've been mentioning the fact that it seems like these days, the only way you get an old game to the table is when it's getting a reprint on Kickstarter. So this week was no different. Uh, Madeira actually got to the table and I got a chance to play it for the very first time up, up until this point. I have not played Madeira. I heard a lot of good things about it. Um, what's your game was, having this up for reprint on Kickstarter. And at least at the time, I, I finally kind of went ahead and I dropped a buck on it just just to hold open the eventual kind of late bidding if I did like the game. So got Madeira to the table. And, you know, it's, it's somewhat similar to a lot of the other games from What's Your Game. If you've played Nippon, it has somewhat of that kind of feel to it where the board is basically these different map components that's been sectioned out in such a way. And then there's particular technologies and trading that can go on. So 
I got that feel from it. Obviously, it has some Marco Polo elements to it with the dice rolling, the dice placement, and then the mitigating of the dice. So I was like, all right, this this is a little bit better. And actually playing Madeira, which is all about the island of Madeira by Portugal and their little history. And once again, this was a surprising element to the game because what the game tries to depict here thematically is the fact that this island is going through changes and that the king is making decisions on what's being produced in those different areas based upon the particular time periods. So the game itself only is five rounds, and you are trying to manage these different king's favors. And at the beginning of the game, you're given one randomly, and it will also determine your player order. And the king favors are somewhat duplicated. You'll see these again and again, because not only do you have that initial one, but by the end of the game, you will also score five others. So you will have six in total, and so so will everyone else. Now, there's ways to score victory points in the game, or what they call prestige points. But basically, the points that you're going to get in the game, the bulk, the large bulk of the points, are going to be based upon these things, based upon these six king favors. So, as I mentioned, one of them might be just trading in money for victory points. One may be how far you can get on a particular track, or how many special benefits are you able to get, or how many ships in what particular colony based on what particular round it happens to be. So it's pretty standard. It's not very complex. But as I mentioned, at the beginning of the game, you're given one of those, and that determines player order. And then what you'll do is you'll select a section that has three dice that have been previously rolled. And the dice range from one to three, which represents the different island sections of Madeira. And you will pick those numbers. And based on those numbers, you'll place those dice on these different activation areas where these different specialists and nobles are out there. And if you have a one and you're looking to place a three, you got to pay a little food to boost it up. And basically, that's going to be the vast majority of the game, placing the dice out to activate the special abilities, which will put people out in the island, put ships out to the harbor, send ships down to the colonies and be able to arrange your people and score money, food, and victory points down in the city area. So basically, as the game goes on, you will activate, and then later on, there'll be a secondary activation phase, which if you're not able to pay for that secondary activation phase, then you have to take pirate tokens. So pirate tokens are negative victory points. And at the end of the game, whoever has the most, and it could only just be one, but whoever has the most will lose 16 points, which is very big for this game. So throughout the game, you're producing resources, you're trading resources for money throughout, and you're picking up special bonus tiles. Now, what I really liked about this game a great deal was it utilized one of the shipyard mechanics, which is you get to pick what scores. You get these different bonus tiles and you decide when are these going to score or which ones are you going to pick up so throughout the game you place out your your dice as your kind of like activation spots the activation spots switch every round so there's a little kind of variety in the game and you pick up the special abilities you activate them you flip them down that's pretty much it it's not a very complicated game what's your game has this certain level of complexity to it as far as what resources you're picking up and what time and what period is it actually happening in. But beyond that, the game is a medium to maybe a little bit heavyweight game. 
I really enjoyed it. I like the day's placement aspect of it. I like the bonus selections. What do I really want to score? And, you know, you can mess with people a little bit by placing pirate dice in a section where they have their own dice because those dice will roll and they'll have to pay the difference. And if they're not able to, that's when the pirate dice come in and they'll score negative points in that. So overall, a very, very solid game. I'm glad that I put the buck in for the backers pledge. I will be backing the collector's edition. Now, for everybody else, you may not need to do that. If you have the basic game, I don't feel like the collector's edition goes above and beyond to kind of radically change the game. The Kickstarter has the opportunity to pick up the expansion. If you don't have the base game, why not go all the way? That's what I'm going to do here. So I'm going to give Madeira a buy. It was a solid, solid Euro game with some interesting mechanics, a lot of replayability, a lot of variety. The dice can be mitigated, but at the same time, the difference between one pip and two pips makes a big difference. That's cool. Yeah, and I... I was on the fence on this because I had also never played it and didn't get a chance before the Kickstarter ended. But I know like hearing other people who had gotten a chance to play like yourself, I, I was like, all right, I'm in. I did the same thing as you. I'm just going to throw a bucket and I'll back it later. Yeah. And yeah, it, it looks really good. I I always find it funny, though, because I don't know what the weight of a game actually is when you describe it. Because you're you're like, oh, it's medium-ish. And I go to BGG and it says 4.27. Wow. I'm like, okay. That's 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 not a thing. I, 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 I think our listeners understand. Because, look, a lot of the mechanics that come into play here are mechanics that you've already played previously. I mean, what you're doing on your turn is pretty simple. You're selecting dice. You take the dice, you place them out there. So it is a medium to a heavyweight game. I don't believe it's anywhere near that heavy. I would say maybe a 3.75 or 3.85. I mean, it's it's close, but there was never a time that anyone felt like they didn't know what to do. There's only really five activation sections on the board. The rules, I think you mentioned this previously, like the rules are really where the game gets weighed down a bit where people feel like it's more complex than it really is. And what's your game does a good job, but at the same time, their rules really don't flow very well. I watched a couple of videos before this play actually happened. And the, the rules explanation was an hour and I played the game. I'm like, there's no way this game needs to be an hour. As far as rules explanation, it's, it's, it's relatively, uh, straightforward as as far as what you need to do yeah okay that makes sense i mean i'm i'm super excited for this i played john guo is in my top 100 games nippon was for a long time and just recently kind of dropped out of there so their stuff in general is really good and um, and it isn't that complicated like you said so i'm hoping this is kind of in the same boat because i no this is definitely the kind of game i like yeah it, so. this game reminds <laughs> me a little bit it. more in the uh their game i think it's railroad revolution where um, yeah. there's a lot of options what you can do, but literally the fact that you pick the dice and you pick the final goals, what you're going to score. Now, as the game goes on, they get somewhat limited, but that really determines your future. You have a lot of control in this game, and that's uh, unusual for a Euro game. So I liked it a lot. All right, so that's everything that's been in the table. Let's talk about our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about the top 10 first player tokens. Now, these are typically the big and chunky and fancy and fully representative 
parts of your board game that designers just really want to show off a bit and really kind of give you a little, you know, a little push over the edge as far as thematic thrills concerned. And if you happen to be the first player, not only do you get to go first, but you get to do it with style. So we got 10 great tokens for you, and they may bring up your game at least a step up. Anthony, you're a big fan of uh, first player tokens, aren't you? I think they're hilarious and unnecessary, but I do love it if people put a little extra thought and effort into it. I think a few of the ones we're going to talk about today, too, are like Kickstarter. And, and that's always fun because it gives them the opportunity to throw in something completely unnecessary and horribly aesthetic, but often Kickstarter exclusive. So you have this really cool, ridiculous thing that other people don't have. <laughs> so It's fun. All right, Anthony. So why don't you start us off with number 10? All right, let's do it. So first on the list for me is definitely not the most ostentatious on the list, but definitely also one that I personally enjoy just because it's so random. I don't know why it's a moose in A Feast for Odin, but why not? There's moose in Scandinavia, so why not have it be a moose? Uh, It is, especially because in the original game, I'm interrupting myself here, but especially because in the original game, before the expansion, there were no moose tokens. There was nothing. There was no antlers. There was no nothing. So like, why a moose? But, you know, moving on. It, but you get this chunky little brown moose and it's fun to pass around. And, you know, there are painted versions you can pick up as well that have like little moose, you know, happy face on them. And yep, it doesn't do anything, but it definitely stands out. And uh, it's a fun one to play with. All right. Number nine for me is a game that is fully decked out. And really kind of gives you that storybook slash Euro experience of pure feudum. (laughs) This is the king on the throne. So if you've ever played feudum, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's got some really interesting elements. And especially the Kickstarter elements here, these kind of fully 3D models that you get to play with. One of the best ones is this king on the throne, this big, large, chunky piece You really do feel really regal and that you are in charge of this feudum. All right. Number eight is Altiplano and it's our buddy, the llama. So Altiplano is like it's a rondelle based reimagining of the Orleans mechanic. And it's not as good as Orleans. And so you don't hear about it very much because it just wasn't as good of a game. So why play this when you could play that? But the one thing the game did really well is it had a colorful ridiculous goofy looking mascot on the cover the llama and it's a decent sized cardboard you know standee that you build that is now your first player token so i i don't know how big the thing is maybe three or four inches long a couple inches tall it's big like you can see it from across the room and it's hilarious to the point where the renegade at their booth it was last year i think had a life-size version of this thing like outside their booth that people could take pictures with because it's just like yeah it's the llama game that's what you know ultra ultra what no it's the llama game and so the first player marker really drives that home all right our number seven is a big favorite of mine this goes way back in the day where first player tokens weren't that really known especially they weren't big and chunky and they really didn't represent themselves very big this is the king token from citadels it was this nice bright yellow wood piece that was representative of the king and had the little crown on it which was awesome and when you played the game everyone wanted to know who the king was because the king would announce the the different roles so this first player token was actually pretty important because 
You knew you were in charge. You were supposed to read the roles. And that's what the king's all about, man. That's our number seven citadels, the king token. All right, number six up, Brew Crafters. This is uh, the Kickstarter, uh, like I mentioned, uh, the second one on the list. And it is a little pint of beer. It is a 3D little wooden pint. Looks like a Guinness. And it's one of those games where with the right people, you want to have it, right? <laughs> like people who drink beer, they're like, I want the beer token because we're playing a game with beer, right? And it it could go any way, right? There are some games that I think there's, I can't remember the name of it, but there's another beer brewing game where you get a coaster, which is fun. That's cool. But coaster is not as cool as an actual pint of beer that you put in front of you that says your first player. This game is fiddly and decently heavy and fairly thematic in terms of like brewing your beer and, and getting the best possible out there. So why not have it go all the way with a little pint of beer as your first player token, which they did. So that's number six, Brewcrafters. Number five is a really fun one. Now, if you've ever played Raw, it's all about being able to strategically outbid your opponents. But in the meantime, everyone else is waiting for you to take your turn and kind of pushing you a little bit. So this giant raw token this big wood piece of the egyptian god Ra. you kind of get to knock it on the table or at least that's what happens at my table time just to kind of push people on and kind of root for the raw token to be pulled out of the bag it's a real fun token it gets played a lot and it actually has the thing you could do with it so that's our number five raw the giant raw token <laughs> all right number four is the dead of winter combat knife I don't know what it is about this thing, but people love it. It doesn't do much. I mean, it just tells you who went first and kind of keeps track of the, the turn order in the game in general. But it's just it's perfect because it tells you exactly what kind of game you're getting into. Like if you sit down with it, you're like, oh, we're fighting zombies. Like, nah, you're going to be stabbing some people in the back. That's what that's what this game's all about. So it's when we asked this as a question of the week two, three months ago, I think this was the one that most people answered. And so it absolutely had to be high up on the list because it is super memorable. Um, and like most of these, it doesn't really do anything, but it stands out. So that is the combat knife from dead of winter at number four. We've talked about our number three game a lot over the years, and that's evolution. And there's so much fun to kind of explore with evolution because there really is a lot of fun, scientific value to it. And you get to learn about all the different evolutionary traits that goes on with predator and prey the plant eaters how they deal with different things and how when a creature has the right combination together they really can rule and then again there's a giant dinosaur meeple that you can play with during the game and come on it's a giant brontosaurus come on it's a brontosaurus man it's awesome it's green and you can play with it while everyone else is trying to deal with the scientific complexity of evolution so yeah our number three is evolution the dinosaur meeple all right yeah Next up, number two, top one on my personal list. And this thing actually sits on my desk because it's so big and so cool and doesn't actually fit in the box. How big is it? It is bigger than my cup of coffee. It is the Song of Ice and Fire miniatures game, Iron Throne Kickstarter exclusive. So you can't really buy this if you go out and get the starter kit. It came with like this special... It, was, it wasn't a huge box of stuff, but it was the biggest thing in that box, like the Kickstarter exclusives with the uh, core set. But it is legitimately the largest first player token I've ever seen. Probably the largest one that's been produced recently, at least. 
It is, I don't know, six inches high and it's based on the books. So it's not like the tiny little piddly Game of Thrones throne that you see in the TV show that can be, you know, melted real quick. It is ginormous, made of thousands of swords and it's kind of sharp, actually. I poke myself on it every now and then. So <laughs> it's fantastic. I do like I'm going to paint it at some point because it's just a cool model to have on my shelf. So it and it's a two player game. So you don't really need a first player marker. But if you're going to have one, why not have it be this ridiculous monstrosity of plastic? So that's number two. The Song of Ice and Fire Miniatures game, Iron Throne. Our number one is Dinosaur Island Slap Bracelet. So if you're going to do a throwback game, that's all about the late 80s, early 90s, all about the neon and the fantastic Jurassic Park. You're going to have a first player token. And this only came in the Kickstarter version of this. Everyone else got like this pretty lame kind of amber token here. It's going to be a slap bracelet because it was the biggest thing in the day. And you could slap it on your wrist. You could show it off to your friends and you could unfortunately walk out with it sometimes. But the slap bracelet Man, what an idea for a first player token. And it is our number one top 10 first player token. All right, so that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you the first player token. to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.